joining Knights in the Breach. This podcast chronicles the people and events from around the 740 from a faith-based perspective. This week, we'll be talking to Paul Sullivan. Alan, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about Paul? Sure. Retired Major General Paul Sullivan was born in 47, married his wife, Kathy, in 1968. He's the father of four, grandfather of eight, and great-grandfather to one. He studied at the University of Loyola, the University of Illinois at Urbana, and joined the Air Force in 1970. He uh, rose through the ranks to become a major general and was with the Ohio National Guard through most of that. He's a past Grand Knight of Council 15447 of the Knights of Columbus and is a fourth degree member. Thanks, Alan. Without any further ado, here's our conversation with Paul Sullivan. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. You're welcome. How are you, Alan? I am great on this wonderfully rainy day. Yeah, it is a little dreary outside, that's for sure. Um, yeah, Paul, I know uh, Alan mentioned a little bit about you in, in the bio, um, but just take a few minutes and introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, Paul Sullivan. live here in, uh, well, outside of Lancaster. I don't actually live in the city. Married for 55 years. Four children, eight grandchildren, one great-grandchild. Uh, did 37 years in the Air Force Air National Guard, kind of combination. Uh, worked for FEMA for a while, worked uh, normal stuff, a few odds, odds and ends after that, and kind of completely retired right around the COVID time. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. Um, you were born uh, in Chicago, right? Correct. Yeah, my dad had gotten uh, out of the Navy, well, <clears throat> like so many men of his generation the war was over and he got married and, uh, he and mom were from iowa and he'd gotten a job in the insurance business he had no, he didn't even have his high school diploma he kind of quit high school to get into the navy and go off to world war ii and they settled on the south side of chicago in an apartment to begin with now the apartment uh, you really weren't supposed to have any kids in the apartment <laughs> oh really so, yeah so when my brother was born <clears throat> they had an aunt that lived uh in northern Indiana, and they'd kind of ship him off there for a while, and then he'd be with them for a while. But when I was born, it was time for them to move. So they moved to the northwest side of the city. Glenview, Illinois is where I grew up. Um, so that that's uh, the early part of life. I went to, uh, was very fortunate, I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, uh, Catholic school. All of us did. Six kids in our family, four boys, two girls. Um, birth order was boy, 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 girl, girl, boy. <laughs> My youngest brother is 16 years younger than I am. So, wow. So he, Joe, yeah. So he and I uh, didn't spend a lot of time together because I was heading off to college about the time he was <clears throat> becoming aware of the family. Um, so after OLPH, I went to Loyola Academy, Jesuit institution. Um, nice. Great, great people. They had just actually moved out from Loyola University campus out to the suburbs of uh, Chicago to Wilmette, and that's where I went to high school. They got a good basketball team. Yeah, typically. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sister Jean. Yeah, Sister Jean. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, Sister yeah Jean. then uh, off to, I went to the University of Illinois down in Champaign, and my brother John went to uh, the University of Illinois Chicago Circle. I mentioned John because he and I are only about 10 months apart in age. 
and uh, we were in the same year in school throughout. What, what was that like growing up with a brother that close in age? You know, we really had different interests, and it never really felt like we competed necessarily. Uh, I was, I guess, more into sports. John was, you know, just, I guess I'd say more academically inclined. We both kind of followed fairly strict or strenuous <coughs> academic careers. He went in the insurance business, which is what my dad was in. Okay. And uh, I went off to became an aeronautical engineer, and <clears throat> then later be, uh, went in the Air Force. I want to circle back real quick because you mentioned your your dad mm -hmm. um, and getting uh, the GI Bill, mm -hmm. right? He served in World War II. Yes. What can you tell us about his service? He uh, was uh, went in the Navy. He he was really anxious to get into the military because his older brother Art was in the Marines. Uh, so he just had to get in the military, and he had to have his mother sign for him because he wasn't yet 18 when he went in. <clears throat> uh, went through uh, basic training at Great Lakes and uh, headed west and was off to the Pacific. First uh, action he saw was in Guadalcanal. It was on the ground in Guadalcanal, and uh, was either an artillery shell or a bomb landed somewhere very close to him, killed his best friend next to him, and he got shrapnel on his back, and now he's back on a hospital ship going back to uh, the U.S. Rehab for about a year or so. Got back into training. He was a CB, so got back into training and was back on a ship heading for Japan for the invasion of Japan when the war ended. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How old was he uh, when his, his friend died and he got hurt? He would have probably been either 18 or 19, 19 probably. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, you have a father that was in the Navy, uh, an uncle in the Marine. Yeah, my uncle. Arthur. And you joined the Air Force. Did you not get any kind of a family living on that? Like, well, uh, you could course, fly planes. Of course, they, they didn't have that option. I lived in a better time. There was no. <laughs> it, it would have been the Army. If you're gonna. So, yeah, the, you know, of that generation, um, my dad and his brother were the two that went in because his next younger brother was too young. Uh, but my wife, Kathy, her, she had several uncles. That were in the, her dad was in the Army in Europe, <clears throat> and he had several other uncles. And then my mom had several brothers who were in the Army also. Two of them were captured at the Battle of the Bulge by the Germans. Wow. My uncle Art, my dad's brother, was the only man in this company to walk off Iwo Jima. Um, wow. So, yeah, they, they had a, an experience set that is pretty unique. Yeah. And I often think about that when we talk about the stresses of our time, and, and especially as we became, became more aware of PTSD what that must have been like. Um, you may have seen some of the recent documentaries on several of the Pacific Island campaigns and how absolutely brutal they were. Right. Um, how guys came back from that and then just said, okay. Back to life. Yeah, now I'm going, now, now I'll become a teacher or a you know, butcher baker, candlestick maker, and Man. I'm not, not going to carry all that around with me and you know, turn psycho, which they didn't. I right. Mean, but they also, you know, they lived through the Depression, too, and a lot of, a lot of difference in the way... The life expectations were just much different. Sure. Yeah, I mean, around, you know, coming off World War One, Great Depression, <clears throat> yeah. World War Two seems like it right there. But you mentioned your dad was 18 or so. I feel like we expect so little sometimes of, of teenagers of that age. But they're in these times of war, there's all these heroic stories throughout. Mm -hmm. Your dad's obviously being one of them. Um, what are you seeing uh, and kids that age, young men and young women. I mean, you yeah. you engage still. You talk to sure. classes of ROTC kids yeah. all the time. Tell us what your experience has been like with them. Well, and beyond that, I think the other 
place that I intersect a lot with them now is uh, I'd, I've served on the selection committees for our representatives for the different academies for probably seven or eight years now. And uh, that, that's a real interesting process. If you're ever feeling like the generation is lost, after about two minutes of talking to some of these kids who are getting straight A's, the captain of this you know, volleyball team, soccer team, whatever it happens to be, and oh, by the way, they also started a charity where they you know, do whatever on the weekends, and it's just, they're just amazing kids. And, it, and the ROTC kids that I talked to down there, I was down there because my former business partner's grandson uh, had wanted to get involved with ROTC. He just liked the discipline that he saw and the guys and gals that he saw involved in that. So <clears throat> he had beaten leukemia as a 12-year-old. Wow. wow. And he was a swimmer in high school and he was doing great in college and all that stuff. And so he saw these guys and gals that are out there at... 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning running every day, and he said, I want to be one of them. So there are those people out there. We had, uh, an interesting side note, of, for around 2001, 9-11, for years before that, we'd been offering full tuition to college for kids, and I was in the Air National Guard at that time, uh, if they would sign up. And it was concurrent. So if you were signing up for six years, but four of those, or maybe five, you were in college. And so an awful lot of those kids were serving and had no ser continuing service commitment. They were just serving. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have to go to war. And you're going to have to go to war in some pretty ugly places. And we don't really even know exactly what we may ask you to do. Not one left. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, we have 5,000 5, Air Guardsmen, about 10,000 Army Guardsmen in Ohio. And they shipped out. And I used to do the departure ceremonies for them, and I look at them, and I, you know, I thought, I've got socks older than you are, and, <laughs> and you're going off there to do some really nasty stuff. So I, I don't lose hope or faith, for, first off. <laughs> this is a bigger deal than any of us are going to solve. If, if you don't believe in something, as I said, <clears throat> I might have mentioned, if you don't have something that grounds you, and you feel like you have to solve every problem that comes along all by yourself, you're going to fail. I mean, at some point, you are just going to be broken because the process is that tough. Yeah. And so I see it over and over again. I see it even now. I mean, there is much to be inspired about in young people. It, it sounds like the, the two through lines in your life are, are probably faith and service, right? That's, that's fair. And growing up, you know, your dad's injury, I don't know how much that impacted his life as he got older. Yeah. But losing a friend that young... Um, you, you know, your father's faith never wavered. I'm sure that's correct. And, and you saw that, right? Right. And he instilled that in the, your entire family. Very practical guy, though. I mean, overall, you know, I, I don't. We did the rosary regularly, but as far as having the Bible out, not not so much. Right. I mean, Dad was all about, you know, as I think it was cl clearer than the man's role: get out there and you know, keep the roof over your head, keep food with your meals, that kind of stuff. Yep. Raise your kids, pay the tuition for the Catholic school. So, you know, a lot of a lot of pressure, you could say, but it was just, that's my job. That's what I do. So he worked very hard. He worked his way up from entry level to where he was the CEO for Lumberman's Mutual Casualty Company. He was wow. John, James S. Kemper's right-hand man for years. I mean, he just was very successful in what he did. But he, I mean, he was constantly studying. That's the other thing I, I told these kids when I talked to them. It's about learning all your life. If you ever stop learning, you stop living. Yeah. So just it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't even matter what it is you're studying. I mean, whether it's ants, what ants do, or what butterflies yeah. do, or how you build a bridge. I, I don't care what you. But learn. 
Yeah. It, 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 you become so stagnant if you don't. So, but yeah, faith is a big deal. Uh, it, it is the thing, it's like everything else, it's kind of the home base. <clears throat> it's wonderful to be able to go back to your, the house you grew up in. Unfortunately, mine, the one that dad built has now been torn down and it's gone. But, but more important than that is to be able to constantly circle back, whether it's in this moment because something bad is happening or in the bigger scheme of where am I going and what am I doing, the bigger big questions of life, to be able to ground yourself in faith. If you can't do that, I, like I said, I don't know how people get get by. Yeah. I, I enjoy how flippant some people are about God and faith and all that stuff, and <clears throat> they dismiss it, but I often wonder, okay, in your darkest moments. The, the old saying, right? There's yeah. no atheists in foxholes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and Paul. after 9-11, Carol Sullivan, which I think you knew you may not have, but she was... A na prior Navy and a nurse as a profession, and she volunteered with the Red Cross, went to New York after 9-11. And she always used to say, I never saw more American flags out, I never saw more people in church than right after 9-11. Yeah. So. While you were talking about 9-11 there, um, that was a horrific day. And most of us started hearing something around 9, 9.30 in the morning that this something was going on in New York and yeah. no one really had a handle on it. Yeah. You were in the, for lack of a better word, the Air Force system. You probably knew what was happening or had a pretty good idea and what would be going on past that. You'd like um, to think. <laughs> um, let me let me tell you that story because it's it's kind of interesting. So at the time I was serving in Ohio as the commander of the Ohio Air Guard, the assistant adjutant general, but I'd also been asked to step in as the deputy director of the Air, Air National Guard for the nation. So in that role, they'd asked me to come. I was going over to D.C. you know a couple of days a week, <clears throat> and we had great connections. In fact, when I was talking to those ROTC kids we talked about a minute ago, I, I told them they probably will never live at a time when you could go to the airport 20 minutes before your flight, go direct to the gate, and just get on. I flew, as a side note, I flew yesterday, and I was at baggage, trying to get my bag checked for an hour. So yeah, that's before security and all of that even. You yeah, know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just what, what, so what changed. Anyway, so I had a flight in that morning, 9-11, I don't know if you remember the day, but clear blue sky all the way from here to D.C. Just a gorgeous fall day. <clears throat> Landed at 8, 8.15, I guess it was, in Reagan National Airport, which then was shut down for 30 days after all that. But anyway, it was right next to the building we were having the meeting. Normally, we met in the Pentagon. I was doing the overall readiness assessment that day, classified assessment for the Air National Guard. So I had all the directors of the Air National Guard in a vaulted, what's called a skiff, <clears throat> secret area. Before we went in, the first airplane had hit the tower in New York, and everybody's going, well, how could that happen? Clear blue day, blah, blah. And, and if you're not really, and I wasn't really familiar with how big those towers are, you saw the outline of the airplane, you may remember that, uh, kind of a smoke coming out of the where it had hit, and you go, wow, what a terrible accident, Gee, I wonder how that could happen. So I went into the meeting, and <clears throat> one of the enlisted folks came in and said, hey, an airplane has hit tower in New York. I said, well, yeah, that happens. No, it's the second one. Said, okay, so that's not good. <clears throat> uh, and I tell you how all this unfolds over the next four or five years of my life, but the next thing, of course, was the airplane at the Pentagon, which is where we were supposed to have been. 
So I turned to the directors and we closed all the classified books. And I said, you need to go back to your sections. The country's going to ask more of you today than it has asked of you in your career. I said, I don't know what that is. But so then comes the, do you evacuate? So I'm in a 14-story building. Do you evacuate the building? Because nobody, you know, you like to think we know what's going on. We did not. In this short space of about the next hour or so, there was a report that a bomb went off at the State Department, that a bomb had gone off at Reagan National Airport. I mean, these are just, you know, somebody hears a loud noise and all of a sudden. So then the federal government decides to send everybody home. Now, if you've ever been to D.C. <clears throat> on a good day, it's hard to get around. If you ever send everybody home, it's gridlock. Yep. And the inner belt that goes by the Pentagon was closed because that was right by the Pentagon. The Pentagon was still buried. So I, we uh, got organized. I talked to the guy who was in charge of the building. They turned off the air conditioner <laughs> because it was inhaling the smoke from the Pentagon into the building. Yep. Well, <clears throat> at any rate... They decided that, yeah, they would release everybody, and I told him, I can get back to Ohio, don't worry about me. And he said, no, I want you to run the crisis action team out of the Andrews Air Force Base. Okay, so we got in a car, and it was amazing. When we got out of that building in the car, we had some priorities so we could get make our way through traffic. It was absolutely silent. Nobody was honking at anybody. I mean, the cars were just gridlocked everywhere, but nobody was you know shaking their fist or screaming or yelling because there was a real sense of, we don't know what's going on. We don't know how many... How many were, how, over of course, the other aircraft had crashed in Pennsylvania by that time. So um, we got, because of what we were doing, we were allowed to get on that inner belt. So we got up to the top of the ramp there, and it, which is, looks right down to the Pentagon. It was still burning. People were running to it, and people were running away from it. So uh, got up to Andrews, and they, now, we had no real experience of just locking things down and who comes and who goes. On the average day on an Air Force base, people are coming and going all the time, deliveries and moms and dad, people live on the base and all that stuff. So they had everybody stopped. They had dogs going through every car because nobody knew how broad, broad this was. So, and uh, they parted the waters so we could get on base. And uh, I spent the next, I didn't have a suitcase, but I spent the next 51 days there. And for the next 30 days, I never had a day off. I worked overnight, the overnight shift started at about 5 in the afternoon, finished at about five or six in the morning, and then we do the debriefing handoff kind of a thing for all the air activity. There was no, there were no rules of engagement for shooting down an airliner. If you remember, you may or may not, but prior to that, when there'd been a hijacking, they'd go someplace and land, there were demands, they'd keep the passengers hostage. Other than in some fictional accounts, there was nobody that really said, said, boy, this is probably gonna be the way they would attack us with four or five airplanes, you know, crashing into buildings. And again, was it going to be 4 or 5 or 10 or 12? Nobody really knew. So so the FAA invoked a thing called Scatana, which is nobody flies. And anybody that flies can be shot down. So we had, we went from having four units on alert, and it was really a low response alert prior to 9-11, to having 25 units on alert within a matter of 24 hours. But we had to kind of on the fly figure out the rules of engagement. Because 20 at the time, 25 or 30 percent of the aircraft in the country didn't have a radio or a transponder. So Farmer Jones, who owns his airplane, as always flies over to his brother Fred's, is, you know, wants to go talk to Fred about what's happening today, and gets in his airplane, takes off. Well, according to the, what the FAA said, you could shoot him down. Wow! And so wow. we didn't do that, but and of course, at, at some point in time, <clears throat> we began began to get it all sorted out. But it was really interesting. So I got a, I was able to. 
pass a message to Kathy. I couldn't talk to her. I passed the message to her that I was fine. And then uh, went to work, and a couple days later, I found out that my brother John, my Irish twin, had been in New York. And he, is, he works for a company called Aon. He's a regional CEO for Aon. <clears throat> they were uh, in a meeting room, supposed to be in a meeting room on the 104th floor of the North Tower. But they had too many people for the meeting room. So wow. they went back to the hotel across the street and met in the Millennium Hotel, which is where they were staying. 34 people from his company were killed that day. Wow. He said he can remember coming out of the Millennium Hotel, which has since been torn down too, and hearing this, like, bags of wet cement. People, people jumping. Dropping. Yeah. Wow. And then he's, he has to work his way off of Long Island as the buildings then start coming down in the big dust clouds. And he's got he had, uh, throat cancer that he's working his way through now, just here recently. There's <clears throat> esophageal cancer. Anyway, he said they finally got to, and they weren't going to take their bags or anything else, so they had basically nothing but the clothes they had on, which were now covered in crap. And they were able to get a ferry over to New Jersey, and the EPA guys met them there and kind of hosed them down and said, okay, you can go. <laughs> 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 they, were, they were from Chicago. so Gotcha. They, yeah. He said they rented a car for it. They probably could have bought the car for what they were charged to, to get wow. back there. But uh, he made it out, and then the first thing he said to me is, Mom just missed having a really bad day. Because <laughs> I was supposed to be in the Pentagon, and he was supposed, supposed to be, be there. No, no kidding. That is just to be so close to it, and wow, yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Did, did you ever, in your wildest dream or your training, even contemplate something like that happening? No, no. Um, and again, it was one of those multiple layers of we call it failure because it happened. And so when something like that happens, you have to point at yourselves and say, okay, why? how come we couldn't defend our own country from our own airliners? Well, there's, <clears throat> embedded is the, in the question is the answer. Yep. We have never thought about just shooting down our own airliners. It never even, you know, there was no no precedence for it. And go, and going, you're, you're talking about how many days, 10 days in a row? You, you or Oh, I, I was, I didn't have a day off for 31 days. 31 days. Yeah. Somewhere in there you're thinking, is this the end of the world? Is this, is the apocalypse about to happen? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I tell you what got really old in the first 24 hours. I, so I, I worked, got to Andrews, went on duty, worked all night, and there are all kinds of stories from that night of goofy things that were still going on as far as people flying or doing stuff that <clears throat> you wouldn't imagine anybody would do given the severity, severity of events. But anyway, uh, I went back in the Pentagon then the next morning because we had to brief the chiefs of staff of the Air Force, Secretary of Defense on on the whole air picture and what we were doing about all this stuff and rules of engagement and all that. So no, it, it's one of those unique situations, but my mom had a favorite saying and all of us kids remember, said, what will be, will be. I mean, you just keep keep moving forward. And you know, you, you don't, you can't prepare for something like that. And there, you know, COVID was sort of another repeat of, you can't really, why did, why did we handle it? it was, if you feel we handled it poorly, why? What would you have done better? And, and some of it is, even though we, we had drills about the Spanish flu, but yeah, when I was in North Northcom, we had drills about what if another Spanish flu happens in the country. But it really wasn't anything like COVID was. I mean, we were more concerned about everybody is so sick that they're dying, they can't run the nuclear reactors and the, you know, run the railroads and run the airports and everything else. How, how's the country going to function? But so in 9-11, it was really, first we were figuring out well, how big was it? Who did it? Why did they do it? So there's the who, what, when, where, why, the five W's, and then the so what, what are we going to do about it? So 
that, that unfolded, and it took a while. You sometimes forget that was September of '01, but it was really a year or so before we, seven, eight months before we really could start to impact what we were going to do and, and put us in a situation that we had never been in. So you, we were fighting an ideology, not an army. And right. then, so I, I, I once I was sitting in one of these strategic meetings, we were talking about all the things we were going to do. And I said to somebody, we better define victory early on or we're going to miss it. Um, and to some extent we did. Um, what you, can, you can't make an ideology go away. You cannot. I mean, unless you were really, really brutal and really just kill everybody. And I'm talking men, women, children, anybody that even knows somebody who knows somebody. And we're not going to do that. You're talking about like Nazi Germany. Yeah, um, yeah. Essentially. And then they fail yeah. too. So, yeah. yeah, you're not going to do that. So what are you going to do? Yep. And the answer is containment. I mean, that's where we are. Really. Well, thank, thank God for cooler heads that, you yeah. know, that your initial urge, I'm sure, is to, to lash out because you, we have been attacked. We've right. been Right. Our people, three, over yeah. 3,000 have been killed. Yeah. And you just like, someone's going to pay for this. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, let's sort out who did it, why, they, why did they do it. Right. And figure out what the appropriate retribution is. So, and I think we, to some extent we're still figuring that out today. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so go, going back to, to your time of service and, mm -hmm. and you went to school, you said you graduated from the University of Illinois mm -hmm. with a Bachelor of Science, Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering. That's correct. That sounds probably pretty easy. You think you could have challenged yourself <laughs> or... <laughs> Taken something a little yeah. bit difficult. <laughs> what, what was that experience like? You must have loved it, right? Yeah, it's very. It's interesting because um, like most big universities then, and I suspect still now, the first year, if you were in engineering, were kind of core courses that civil engineer, electrical engineer, aeronautical engineer, we all took. So big, big classrooms. Uh, and it, they were the weeding out courses. Yeah. They were the ones that you found out you really weren't cut out to be an engineer. Now, were, were you, did you have like being a pilot in mind already? No. No. Okay. Not at all. <clears throat> no. So uh, at, you ask how the second year and on, aeronautical engineering was a very small college. So there were about 40 of us. Really, well, it started at about 60, and I think 40 finally graduated, or 35, something like that. But, I mean, they were all smart people. And aeronautical engineering was an interesting field because <clears throat> you kind of lived and died based on government contracts. Oh, okay. Or yeah. big developments in the field of aviation. So the year before I graduated, everybody had six or seven job offers. But of those people, you know, so there'd be Boeing, McDonnell, Douglas, I mean, all the, the usual suspects. But... You'd work for them for a year or two, and then that contract would dry up, or they'd be in production, and you don't need as many engineers anymore, so now you'd go work for somebody else, and you'd move again. So it was a kind of a gypsy life, being an engineer. Mercenary. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, so anyway, when I graduated, they had several of the contract either the engineering was done or the contracts had dried up, so there weren't, I had a couple of job offers, but I ended up going to work as a fuel controls engineer up in Rockford, Illinois, as a matter of fact. How did you get into squadron officer school or what was that like? Well, <laughs> so I took the Air Force officer qualification test before I graduated. Did pretty well in that. Um, but I had a job and I actually had gotten married at the end of my junior year. So I finished my senior year. Kathy was teaching. She's a year older than I am. So she was teaching up in Rantoul, Illinois. Uh, she knew the Air Force Base was there. 
Uh, and I was going to school at the University of Illinois, and life was good. And then our first daughter came along after, in December of 69. We were married in August of 68. And so now I'm graduating, and I've got a child and a wife and uh, got an aeronautical engineering job, which was good because the country was sort of fi trying to figure out what they're going to do about the draft in Vietnam. Right. So if you weren't in college at the time, you were going to be drafted. If you were in college, you had a deferment while you were in college, but only while you were in college. They had done away with the family deferments mm -hmm. and gone to a system of a lottery system because there are a lot of complaints that the draft wasn't fair. And it probably was. A lot of music about that, I think, yeah. about that time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my lottery, so the way the lottery worked is they put 366 little balls in a jar, and each one was the date of the year, to include your leap year, and they pulled them out. And if your birthday came out first, you were number one in the draft, and anybody with that birthday, they hunted you down, and if they drafted you, if, unless you had the only you get a critical skills deferment, I think that was about it, or met, obviously a medical deferment. <clears throat> disqualification, but other than that, you were going to be drafted. So I happened to have a critical skills department because I was working on fuel controls for military aircraft. But if I ever left that job, I'd be drafted immediately. Right. Which was sort of interesting. The company I worked for was very interesting, Woodward Governor Company. <clears throat> a little bit like communism. I mean, they had a free lunch, they had dentists in the, there, they had barbers in the building, they wow. had all the vitamins, whatever, and they had uh, really total transparency at four plants around the world building fuel controls <coughs> and uh, which are kind of like carburetors but anyway uh, they tell you show you every day how the whole company was doing so you could see if they're making money losing money all the time and we were working on a project for the military called the AMSA the advanced man strategic aircraft which became the B1 oh wow and it was a big political football back then because people said, we don't need it, we still have B-52s, so, so at, we would live and die, at least a lot of the jobs in that company would live and die based on what Congress decided to do as far as funding it. So there one year they decided, the second year I was working for Woodward Governor, they kind of decided they weren't going to fund it, um, or not fund it as much. The company had no unions, so on a good Friday, We'd have these big companies, so a thousand people worked in that plant, mostly engineers and really highly skilled machinist kind of people. <clears throat> brought us all together and they explained what was going on, which we kind of already all knew. And they said, oh, if you go back to your desk and your supervisor comes around and gives you an envelope, you won't need to be here on Monday. Wow. Now, remember what I said, if I lost that job, I was going to be drafted, drafted. Imme immediately. Yep. So I didn't. I actually got a raise. But I went home and talked to Kathy, and I said, you know. And about that time, the Air Force had contacted me and said, hey, if you want to fly, you, you qualify to be a go-to-pilot training. So we talked about it. One of the things I always, we used to do uh, pre-Cana, and I always used to describe our relationship as she was willing to skate with me where the ice was very thin. <laughs> so we just said, okay, off we go. So we... In September of 1970, um, attorney brother of mine and I both went in the United States Air Force. Um, left uh, Kathy, she's moved in with my mom and dad, Kathy and Kelly, our oldest daughter. Moved in with mom and dad, and I went off to Lackland Air Force Base for officer training school. 90 days of pure enjoyment. <coughs> Anybody <laughs> afraid of heights there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far, that, that's just every Air Force officer would go through officer training. If you didn't go to the Air Force Academy, which was very new <clears throat> at the time, or you didn't go to ROTC. The only other way to get a commission was to go through OTS. 
And of course, Vietnam was going on, and the Air Force was losing lots of people, so they were cranking a lot of people through OTS. So we had rated, non-rated folks, all kinds of people going through OTS. Prior enlisted, and we're going through. We're going to be, you know, logistics officers. We're going to be. So it was really about breaking you down and building you up, which is what most basic training does. And then after that, um, we <laughs> there were eleven pilot training bases at the time. There are only five, I think, now. <clears throat> so we had them all the way from Phoenix, Arizona, to four or five in Texas, and there's one in Selma, Alabama, and there's one in... So I called Kathy the night I found out that we were going to Selma, Alabama. <laughs> and they just had the march, you know, across yeah. the right. Pettis Bridge is in Selma, Alabama. Yep. <clears throat> so she was not excited about that, but <clears throat> it was one of those things that uh, life, life offers you. So off we went to uh, flight school, and I had not flown an airplane before I went to pilot training. At the time, you went through T-41, which is a Cessna. That's your first entry airplane. And they actually had civilians that taught you to fly. And you'd have a certain number of sorties, and you had to solo. So and I had some trouble with that. I actually had washed back a class, but I finally did. And after that, I had no trouble and finished you know, third or fourth or fifth in the class, wherever it was. Um, but it's, it was it's a strenuous, very tough year. You flip from having academics in the morning and flying in the afternoon and the evening, then the next two weeks you reverse. So that's when I started drinking coffee. Is that I, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I'm sure everybody listening wants to know: was was Tom Cruise there? Was mm, was, no. it, was the Iceman there at all? <laughs> no, 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 no. It wasn't like that. No, no, that no, that's no, the no. Navy anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that's true. That is the Navy and. The advanced schools, like like Top Gun uh, and some of the fighter weapon schools and all that stuff, you would, might allow you a little bit more creativity, but uh, being too creative in an, especially in a training environment normally gets you either washed out or killed. So yeah, right. So, <clears throat> neither of which are desirable outcomes. Um. So so after that, what was the next step? Right. So. Now you're a Air Force. So pilot. yeah, I have, out of pilot training, they would combine three different bases because we graduated at the same time and they'd have uh, your ranking and then they'd have the available airplanes and when you graduated or as you were graduating you were either fighter qualified or you were not so if you were a fi fighter instructor qualified I should say and I was fortunately <clears throat> they only had actually two fighters for 70 slots and so those, those were off the board before I had a chance to Pick, and so I took a T-38 and became a T-38 instructor right out of pilot training. So then I went off to instructor training and land survival and sea survival, which didn't make a lot of sense to me since I was staying in the United States anyway. Right. But it was further abuse and <laughs> <laughs> further abuse and a lovely time. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the aircraft you've flown. You, you mentioned the T-38. You've flown a T-37. Yeah. F-100. A-7D. Lots of times the A-7. F-16C. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I know I just impressed everybody with my knowledge of military aircraft. Yeah, well done. Uh, Paul is the first person that you can, um, he has his own Wikipedia, so you can find the information there. <laughs> um, what was your favorite aircraft to fly and why? Well, the F-16 uh, was, I mean, that's every pilot's dream. The, uh, the, it's the first airplane I ever flew that the stick didn't move. You know, prior to that, and the stick always used to be right there in the middle, and it was off to the side. So you had a side stick controller, and it did not move. It was based on the pressure in your hand. 
So, you know, left, right, up, down, it's just pressure in your hand. And I used to call it a thought machine. It had so much thrust, and especially when it was clean, when you didn't have a lot of bombs and fuel tanks or whatever on it. The thing that, that if you wanted to be over there, you just thought about it, and you were over there. If you want to get behind somebody, you just thought about it. You were there. You could pull nine Gs if you could, if your body can stand it. You could pull nine Gs in that thing for a while, and that that hurts. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you've done it. Oh yeah, yeah, not not, <laughs> yeah. Paul, I'm sorry. Did you have a lot of time? I mean, I'm not sure. Were you primarily by yourself? Were, did you have a wingman off to your side? On yeah, the most uh, yeah. Normally, you're always flying in either two ship or four ship. Uh, Formations there occasionally uh, you could take an airplane up um, by yourself usually a functional check flight an FCF flight where they're just the Airplanes had a problem. They fix the problem. I think they have it, it needs a flight go, go fly it and bring it back I wouldn't want to be that guy. <laughs> actually, we it's think okay. it's fixed it's here. A, give it a shot. Yeah, it's actually yeah. okay <clears throat> But in the other time uh, I got to take an airplane we had done real well on an, an inspection and when I was an instructor and they what needed some T-38s that I was instructing in, flown out to uh, uh, the Nellis area, out to Northrop, and we we're going to get to pick up a couple new ones, drop off a couple old ones, so we're going to do something with them. So we were just kind of giving the keys to the jet. It's like trading in a Buick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> giving the keys to the jet and told, it, told we had two days to get out there and three days to get back or something like that, go in and we'd go anywhere we wanted. So you had a lot of time to enjoy the scenery. Yeah. Uh, and what, the, what's that? <coughs> like being up kind of by yourself you've got another guy out there but yeah yeah you don't just have looking around it's interesting you have no sensation of speed unless you're close to something so you know clouds were a lot of fun to just you know zoom around clouds and <clears throat> pull pull lots of g's around a cloud get down low when we're flying low levels and initially they wanted to keep you above 500 feet because too many people were tying the record for flying low um, but eventually they figured out you had to get down to at least 100, maybe 300 to be underneath the radar. That's the only reason you fly low, really, because you can't see as well and you don't have as much reaction time. And lots of birds fly low, too. So, yep. you know, we lose airplanes that way. So, but there you get the real sensation of speed when you're when you're down. Low. Or, of course, obviously, when you're doing air-to-air -air combat, if somebody's coming at you at 500 knots and you're doing 500 knots, <clears throat> when they go by, it's 1,000 knots, and that'll catch your attention once. <laughs> <laughs> you pass somebody at a thousand knots, but um, you're over three thousand hours in the air, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any any close calls or any crazy? Well, I ejected. That's oh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I saw. So, so my Air Force career went seven years of active duty in the various roles there, and then I got out, went to work for uh, uh, Rockwell here in Columbus. I'd never been in Columbus before, but they offered me a job, and I'd worked with some Rockwell engineers when I was still in the Air Force. So off we came uh, out, of the, out of the Air Force to Columbus, Ohio, and I got in the Air National Guard here at Rickenbacker uh, Air Force Base, Air National Guard Base. And uh, after a year of working for Rockwell, one of the guys I was with said, uh, hey, there's this whole new software thing starting out. You know, IBM is coming out with smaller computers. They need people to write software. I thought, you know, I can do that. <laughs> so, so I it's probably I, a little different day to day. Well, than yeah, you're so, used to. yeah. So now we've got two kids and another one coming. And I went home to Kathy. I was going to start a business. <laughs> and by the way, I was flying part time in the Air National Guard. She said, "Okay, this is again skating on thin ice, <laughs> yeah, right?" Yeah. <laughs> And so I started the company, a computer programming company. So I have that going on, and I'm flying in the Air National Guard. 
1985, so that was 78, 79, all that's transpiring. <clears throat> 1985, we I had full day at work at the office. Went out and I was leading a four ship over to uh, Jefferson Proving Grounds. And we the concept was to try to get everybody's first bomb on target in a minute and a half with 30 second intervals. You have to have a 30 second interval or you'll frag yourself if you're coming in. And the maneuver that we would do, come in at whatever your minimum was for the low level, which is 500 feet. And then you pull and you're going usually 480 knots. <clears throat> pull up to about 1500 feet, roll upside down, roll out, drop your bomb, pull off. And from the time that bomb hits to the next one hits, and, and I had briefed us who so were coming in from all four different directions. So you, you never want to be predictable. That was part of the exercise, don't be predictable. And you never want to hang around the target area. <clears throat> so that was the plan. On the way into the range, uh, further context, the A7, which is what we were flying at the time, was having engine problems. Known problem that the engine might come apart. Now the A7 is a single engine airplane. So if the engine fails, you don't have a whole lot of options. Um, and the military was installing what was called a help kit in the engines, but it wasn't, wasn't funded to get all of them done at once. So the airplanes we were flying didn't have the help kit in them yet. So that's the background on that. Anyway, so we're flying into the range and I'm leading and <clears throat> about the time we're supposed to hit our action point, our initial point, uh, the firelight comes on and it feels like I put the speed brake down and I look down and you know, the temperature's going way up. So I was going fast enough, so I just popped up. And I called the range officer, Larry Williams, and he and I had a long history together. By popped up, you mean? Pulled up from 500 feet to okay. probably 2,000 or maybe 3,000 feet, about whatever my energy I had. So I traded energy for altitude. Gotcha. Which gets you time. Yeah, and I called Larry and I told the flight that I had an in-flight emergency. And so they, the number three and four rejoined and they went up high. Eight or 10,000 feet, and my women kind of closed up on me because we, we were flying in a battle box, which is 6,000 feet, 6,000 feet. So everybody's 6,000 feet apart in the square, gotcha. kind of a thing. And then at the action point, my women and I were going to the right, and they were going to the left, and it was all going to work out magically. <clears throat> but that didn't, we didn't get that far. So uh, I called Larry and told him I had an airplane emergency. He said, Well, Cincinnati is, you know, down to the southeast for 25 miles. I said, No, Larry, the airplane's staying with you tonight. <laughs> so. <clears throat> the Jefferson Proving Ground range, if you think of a long rectangle, uh, so we were coming in from the north, so it's north-south rectangle. The south side, the Army had been using for years, they'd fire artillery, and so it had a series of alphabetically named roads, and anything south of H Road is where they would fire. So I, when I told Larry the airplane was down there, I asked him if it was hot south of H Road, because I didn't want to fly down that far. <laughs> if they were shooting. If they're shooting, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thought that would be it's a, a good bad, question. thought that would be a bad plan. So uh, anyway, zoomed up. So the parameters are, if you're out of control in an aircraft, you eject at 10,000 feet. If you're under control, you're supposed to eject at 2,000 feet, 1,000 feet minimum. Well, 2,000 feet, and I'd gotten up to 25 meters, so the, this long tri rectangle, rather, and I'm flying south in this long rectangle. The wind was actually out of the north, if I remember. Yeah, the wind was out of the north. Anyway, I look up, and there's farms on either side of this long rectangle. It isn't all that wide, and I'm thinking, no, no 2,000 feet's too high. This airplane, I can jump out of it, it could fly off the range and hit somebody. So I'm going to stay with it. So I got down to 1,000 feet, and now I was down to, I don't know, 200 knots or 230 knots. So the airplane is 
going to come down. And you were in the checklist and all the stuff, the switches you're supposed to do, because nothing, nothing you can really do about it. The engine came apart. So, Anyway, about that time, my women gets a little too close. I told them to move out. He goes, about to eject. I said, move out. <laughs> I don't want to hit you. <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, about uh, 800 feet, I think I jumped out. And uh, it gets so quiet. I mean, everything is so hectic when you're throwing switches and the lights are flashing and all this other crap. You pull the handle, and just like I said, with adrenaline causes, it just takes time and just expands. A second is like two minutes. Yep. So I actually remember seeing the airplane disappear under my feet as I'm coming out of the up the rail and out of the thing. Fortunately, the canopy separated first. Canopy's still in my basement. Oh, you got it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nice. And the ejection seat. Yeah, I got both those. And the parachute, which is all junk that will end up in the trash someday. But at any rate, uh, so... Up, up I go, and <clears throat> I'm thinking uh, something I'm supposed to do right away. Oh, yeah, i got to check and see if the parachute opens. So I turn my head, and there's a pilot chute that comes out first, and then the big chute comes out. The pilot chute had come out, and it yanked the big out, and so the riser hit me right in the side of the neck because I had turned my head to see if there was a parachute there. <laughs> well, the parachute opened. That was good. <clears throat> Remember, I said, so I'm flying to the south. The wind's out of the north. And I'm watching the airplane. hits, and there's a big fireball. And I'm thinking, ooh. I don't, I'm going towards the fireball. Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> another problem. Yeah, another problem. <clears throat> so I, there's a way to steer those things. There's what's called a four-line cut. There's two little red loops on your parachute risers. And you grab one and it creates, and pull it, and it creates a lobe in the parachute so that it's more steerable. Well, there wasn't a lot of time for that. So I just grabbed the riser and pulled it, <clears throat> and the parachute turned a little bit, which was good. So now I was going towards the fireball. So that was good. Now you're going to land in the trees because this is a forested range, heavily forested range. Now there's some stuff about that too. If you're down in the trees, you can catch a you know branch in the neck, a branch in yeah. you know, the guts. So you make yourself you're supposed to make yourself as skinny as possible. So you just kind of get you know get get close to yourself and give yourself a big hug. <clears throat> now you're coming down through the trees, which in itself is good, except that all the practice you've ever done for parachute landing falls. You kind of have a different, quite a different position to, you know, as they uh, hit, shift, and rotate is the way you do parachute landing falls so you don't break your legs. But when you're worried about the trees, you can't, really can't get in that kind of position. So it turns out the parachute risers were longer than the tree was tall. So <laughs> instead of catching me up in the tree, I hit the ground. The ground. Oh, no. <laughs> and it turns out I, I found out later in the afternoon or well, this was this was evening already. I'd broken my back, and it's a small bone in my back, but... Uh, I got over that. All things considered. Yeah, all things considered. I got up and counted all the big pieces, and they were all there. So so at some time, you remember doing a lot of this, or did your training just kick in, and it was just... It really bang, was, bang, as far bang, as everything up, through, everything up through the uh, jumping out of the airplane was all training. You know, we had a simulator there. We had simulated engine failures, you know, all the way up through ejection. So, yeah, it was all, you did this, you did this, you did that. Your altitude is this, your airspeed is that. You've got no thrust left, so you're coming down. Time to get up. And you get out, and then that's why I said then it gets really quiet. And then you start thinking about oh, all that other stuff from my parachute landing training I'm supposed to be doing. What are the far the farmers obviously know what's happening there, but if they're that close, right? They've got they got to be hearing that all the time. I well, they hear they certainly hear airplanes all the time. Yeah. Um, how much they could tell the difference between that and artillery shells, I couldn't tell you. Right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> um, so. Your 
and keep me honest here, your last promotion was to Major General? Correct. Explain kind of how you got to that point in terms of, you know, how was that the next step? What did you done just before that? And what's the role of, of a Major General? Well, of course, it depends on exactly that. What, why, why are you being promoted? So I um, had gone through the squadron ranks, and I was selected to be the operations officer for the state of Ohio in the Air National Guard, which was an 06, a colonel position. And then from that, uh, they had a vacancy for the chief of staff of the Ohio Air National Guard, which is a one-star. And I was selected for that. And it was promotable to two stars and then time they promoted me to a second star there so that's how I got the second star it was to be the commander of the Ohio Air Guard is what, what it amounted to so my job was the 12 units we have in Ohio at the time and four of them were flying units was to make sure they were getting done what they needed to get done and we had great commanders they were really taking care of the day-to-day -day stuff but it's about it's a constant struggle not just in the guard on active duty or reserves it's a, maintaining the equipment, keeping the training going, and getting people to come into the organization, and the, and the discipline issues that you have. So so that was the step up, and, that's, and that really is not a flying position. Uh, I was able to keep flying as the operations officer for the state and even as the chief of staff initially, but <laughs> they had a chief of staff in another state who shall remain nameless, um, <clears throat> but their football team will be hosting Buckeyes this weekend, <laughs> who took advantage of that and actually crashed an airplane. He wasn't killed, but he destroyed an airplane. Somebody said, well, why was he even flying? <laughs> because you don't have an operational role. You're not, not yeah. going to send you out in the first wave of the next <clears throat> attack if you're a, a one-star or two-star general. There are a few that did lead significant attack elements, but did a whole different role. So uh, that's what the job was. The job was to keep the organization moving forward and... Uh, I was selected for it, and there we go. And the other jobs that I had after that um, at the National Guard Bureau and then at North, North Carolina were all two-star jobs. So, okay. Yeah. Since uh, a lot of your career, you said you were uh, skating on thin ice, mm -hmm. were, was there any thought to continuing on in the uh, Air Force? And yeah. Um, the first, so I had seven years in. The way that unfolded, so I, I was an instructor, and then my... Through 75, I believe it was. So Vietnam is done now. And people are coming home. And the Air Force is pretty much getting rid of a lot of older fighters. But the new ones, F-15, F-16, haven't really come online yet. Again, it's all about funding, how fast you're going to build them. <clears throat> so we had a lot of guys who needed a next assignment, but there wasn't necessarily an airplane there. So I, because I was an engineer, I went into weapons development down in Eglin Air Force Base in the rated supplement. And I was supposed to fly down there, but that did not materialize. So that, coming out of that, now, when you first go in the Air Force, you don't have a regular commission. You have a reserve commission. They offered me a regular commission, uh, which I had accepted. So I had to resign that if I got out. And I talked to Kathy about it. our next assignment was likely going to be a heavy airplane, not a fighter, and it was going to be perhaps in Minot, North Dakota. So I talked to her and said, I really don't want to do that. And I'd gotten a master's degree by that time, too, while I was working in weapons test. University of Florida had a uh, remote program, so I could take classes and work, and it was all good. So I, I was in industrial systems engineering. So I had that, and I figured, man, I like working, and I'm reasonably competent, so I'm just going to get out. So 
again, Kathy said, okay. So we came up to Columbus, Ohio. Um, so that was kind of the why, why the first time uh, off active duty. But I knew I wanted to fly, and I was fortunate that, like I said, Ohio had a lot of flying units, which I didn't necessarily know when I came to uh, Rockwell. Is there any specific reason for that? Uh, just the way it unfolded after World War II. Okay. Um, so the Red, Red Tails uh, were originally actually stationed here in Ohio. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, there, were, there were opportunities, and I was fortunate enough. <laughs> I went and flew with the Army, Army helicopters because there was a guy at Rockwell that was in the Army Guard, and we'd go out and fly a helicopter to see if I wanted to do that. But <clears throat> at the same time, I talked to them down at Rickenbacker, and they accepted me, and um, rest. The rest is history. Here we yeah. are. Yeah, the rest of the so you've obviously had a, a long storied career, and we're just barely scratching the surface, right? We haven't even really talked about Vietnam, right? Um, but well, yeah. as as your life is unfolding, you get married, you have kids, you're in the Air Force, you're in civilian life. Faith again is a through line through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. What is what does that look like being a Catholic in, in all these places, um, and you know, getting to mass is probably not an easy thing if you're you know in the air for an entire Sunday or whatever the case may be. Just yeah. tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, the uh, it, it, what didn't shouldn't have surprised me. I guess it did the first few times I noticed it is really how much faith there is in the military. And I mean outside faith in the military, but people in the military who are people of great faith. Not necessarily all Catholics, right? but people of great faith. And it just shows. I mean, as I said, you've got to believe in something higher. Because if nothing else, we always used to say, no plan survives first contact. If you think you're in charge, you're very confused. I mean, if 9-11 taught us anything, it was that. that We didn't see that coming, and we didn't really know how we were going to respond. And fortunately, we didn't all kill each other kind of a thing, and we didn't really go nuclear and you know, start lobbing nuclear weapons at somebody just for the heck of it. So along the way, you just encounter people that really support that idea, that they understand. If you say, hey, i, I got to get to church today, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll cover before you go. Um, and also, uh, I remember being in Bosnia, and we were, <clears throat> I was flying with one of our, our units who's delivering supplies in there, and... Uh, Chaplain came out to the airplane, did a, did a mass service for us right there at the airplane on the hood of a Jeep kind of a thing, and off we went, you know, wow. flying down range. So, you know, they, there's great respect for whatever your religious beliefs are in the military to try to honor those and give you an opportunity, whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or, you know, to practice your faith. That's, that's always been there. Wow. And I know the Air Force can't actually go out and tell someone, hey, maybe you should get to chapel or something. But, no, no. Yeah. but uh, <clears throat> what do they do for those that don't necessarily seek a religious answer to the stress that you all have to be under? Yeah. Uh, does the Air Force have programs for that? Uh, they have a lot of, developed a lot of programs lately. It's interesting because over the last several years now, we've had more losses due to suicide than we've had combat losses in the Air Force. And every one of them, of course, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in training, if not millions involved in some of these folks, besides the fact that they're just good people, um, exceptional people that wanted to serve anyway. So what happened, what went wrong? So there's been a lot of uh, 
work to try to understand how can you support somebody early on. As far as proselytizing, that's frowned upon. We've had some general officers lose their jobs because they're wow. up there thumping the Bible and talking about that for the obvious reason that hey, if the boss says I have to do this, I guess I have to give up my religious belief and do what he does. So we don't do that <clears throat> or shouldn't and don't by and large. But as far as a, trying to convince folks to avail themselves of any and all uh, support that's out there, um, a lot of emphasis on trying to get, you know, if you need it, psychological support, trying to take that stigma away from that. You're not weak because you had to go talk to somebody. It's just a part of coping for a lot of people. And again, <clears throat> I firmly believe, it's my belief, that a lot of this is because of the lack of faith that we see in too many people. When it when the, you know, you finally get the promotion and you realize it's just more work, where am I going and why am I doing this? Um, you know, there will always be failures in life. And when you fail at something, you know, what do you, what do you say to yourself? I guess I'm no good. I guess I should quit. I guess that's it. Or do you say, hey, wait a minute, I'm here, I'm here for a reason. I remember so well our granddaughter Riley <clears throat> asked me one day about that. She said, if we're all trying to get home to God, what's wrong with suicide? <clears throat> and that's, my answer was, we're all here to do something. We don't get to quit. Yep. So, you know, when our time comes, we're all going to go see God. But that's there's a time for that. And it's, you don't take that in your own hands. And uh, I, that's the message I think that's hard to get across to folks. If you have no belief that there's anything else, if it's just about, you know, the next big promotion at work or the next car or the next relationship, those things tend to get let you down from time to time. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's helpful and essential to me that you have some sort of faith that, that you step back and you just say, I get it, or I don't get it, but there is a God and he gets it. He gets and, it, yeah. yeah. So we'll just keep doing our part and it, it'll work out the way it's supposed to work out. What we're going through right now, I mean, it's very tough on this community, but I've gone through this with closing units and, you know, we had a great fighter unit down in Rickenbacker. We won all kinds of awards. We were top-notch every time we were inspected. They closed us down, took our fighters away. Why? Because we had so many flying units in Ohio. Other states didn't. They didn't have enough fighters to go around. So we lost the unit. I mean, that was, that was tough. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I think um, everybody has a diff different perspective. Yours is, is very unique in the sense that you've been a part of, of, of so many things. And something like that. Um, where, you know, they shut down the unit, they ship it away for, mm -hmm. you know, again, everything seems to be going fine, right? Yeah. What, what do you, how do you move on from that? Like, what's what's the response? Yeah. Well, the first thing, if you're in a leadership position, the first thing you do is take care of your people. Uh, try to get with each and every one of them as much as you, you can, <clears throat> and as time permits, to talk through the, all right, the end of the world, this is where we're going to have to go. This is life now. So what are we going to do next? What do you want to do next? Uh, for some folks, they already had 20 years in and they could retire if they wanted to retire. For others, we got them placed in other units, other fighter units. Um, for our weapons, these are kind of unique skills. It's great to be a fighter pilot, but <laughs> if you don't have fighters around, <laughs> yeah, right. so what? Who cares? You're just a pilot. Um, so, yeah, you work... You work 
as much as you can with each individual. First, you try to understand the universe of possibilities, everything from retirement to going someplace else. Now, the Guard is unique because people join the Guard because we stay in one town. We may deploy all over the world all the time, but we come home right. to a single place. We don't get you know reassigned all over the country. The reserves are different. They do reassign to different units. Uh, and of course, active duty, you move around all the time. But um, so it's tough. It's a very tough thing, and you don't want to minimize that. On the other hand, you don't want people to just get stuck. Uh, gee, the bad thing happened. Now I'm going to be angry the rest of my life. What's that? Where's that going to get you? So you got to figure out how you're going to over overwork phrase about lemonade out of lemons. That's not really the way it works. I mean, it's, it's still lemons. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But but there there are people in worse shape, and I, I think you've all. I'm sure you've read or heard that talk about, you know, I lost my hand and I felt really bad till I saw the guy that had lost both arms and you know, so on and so forth. Um, when I was in D.C., my assigned to D.C., I used to go over to Walter Reed to visit any with any of the kids that were coming back. They were shot up, beat up, you know, pieces and parts missing and all that. And the resiliency that I saw in some of those kids. Uh, one guy was in the Army National Guard out of Pennsylvania, mechanic was working on a helicopter in Iraq. And the helicopter, wheel, all aircraft wheels have blow-up plugs. So if they're too hot, they're supposed to, blow-up plug's supposed to go and things, so the tire doesn't explode. Well, the blow-up plug was mismanufactured in this thing. He was working on it and the tire exploded and took off both of his hands. Oh my God. So he's a mechanic and he has no hands. <clears throat> and he had prosthetics when I, when I saw him. And his fiance was there in the room with him and his mom and dad. And the resiliency that kid had, you know, this is really sad, but we're moving forward. I mean, you walk into a room like that and you go, what am I going to say to make him feel better? And you walk out of the room feeling better because of what they did. He made you feel yeah, better. Yeah, exactly. And I've had that experience over and over again with people. And it's just about why, how do you keep going forward when that happens to you? You have some faith that I'm supposed to keep going forward. So you do. Yep. I mean, that's kind of how it has always worked. Wow. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, and I know at some point we were going to thank you for your service. And that's, you know, that's kind of the patent answer anymore when you see somebody from the military, whether they're in uniform or you know that they've served. I'm not going to sit here and thank you for your service, although I deeply appreciate it. I'm thanking you for your sacrifices. Well, to be there, to put yourself on the line for all of us. All, everyone in the Air Force, Marines, Navy, Army, uh, There's, it's, it's um, a debt we can never repay. Well, I appreciate the, that thought. Um, there's a point in your career, and, and I heard this phrase first used by a senior officer, the cloth of the nation, where you understand what an honor it is to wear the cloth of the nation. Um, so it, it cuts both ways. I mean, you, you've really... A lot of people work their whole lives and can't tell you why they did what they did. Or when you wear the cloth of the nation, you know why you're doing what you're doing. You're protecting the nation. Um, so it was an honor. And, and and the people you work with are the most incredible group of people you'll ever meet. I, I went to so many different retirements, and I always heard the same thing, especially fighter pilot retirements. You think, well, I'm going to miss the flying the fighters, and certainly that's true. But what you miss are the people. I mean, there's a relationship there and I think that's as we look at what's happening with St. Mark right now that that's the difficult thing it's the people 
Yeah, it's not about the facility and the parking and the this and that. It, that's that's there too, but it's about the people. Because um, that's what makes up this parish. It's it's the people. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It and, wouldn't be the same if if there were different people here, yeah. right? It's the community of Saint Mark. Exactly, but you have to have the faith that we will. There will be other communities and other things that will allow us to grow in our faith. I believe that. Um, I don't yet know how that's going to shape out, even for our family. I mean, there's some we have some mobility issues in our family, and so it may not be that possible to go to St. Mary's. We're going to try it for a while, but <clears throat> we'll see what happens. But I, I just believe it's going to work out. So, and the, that, the military does a pretty good job of doing spouse recognition too. I think, and that trickles down also to your kids. Yeah, I mean, well, dad can't be here for this or that. Yeah. So, so here's that faith thing again. <clears throat> Um, in 1985, I ejected in July of 85. In December of 84, a fellow that I flew with regularly, and I, he was full-time at the base. I was still doing my computer programming business, but he was full-time out there flying A-7s. Great pilot, just exceptional. So we do night gunnery missions, which were, in today's world, you'd say, why on earth would you do, use that tactic? But it, an airplane is carrying these super high-intensity flares, he comes over the target first, drops two flares off, boom, they have parachutes, they float. While they, in that time that you have, you have illumination, you drop bomb, everybody else drops bombs, and then you rejoin and you go home. So we did done that the week before and I'd been with him. On that Thursday night, his daughter and wife, and Kathy and I and our daughter were at a little play in Lithopolis and he was killed, ran to the ground, killed. Um, what happens is the flares create a false horizon. So if one falls faster than another, you think this is the horizon, but it's not. You're going down. And he was rejoining on a guy at night. And again, people would say, why on earth did you do something that dangerous? Well, at the time, that was our best night, night attack tactic. Anyhow, so he was rejoining the guy. He got too low. He hit the ground and he was killed. So I can remember how hard my daughter hugged me uh, the next day. So yeah, yeah, lots of sacrifices that the whole family makes. Uh, and but his faith—if you don't, even when he was killed, there's this sense of okay, but we're all moving forward. And we kept in touch with the wife and the kids, and it's still are today. Um, so <clears throat> it's it's just what you do. But accepting that is just matter of fact, day to day, every day, your spouse and your kids are making a great sacrifice to support a military lifestyle. And the the service has continued for you, right? Even in civilian life. Sure. I know one of the things you're involved in is uh, foundation dinners mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. right? You do that pretty often. You want to talk about foundation dinners, foundation shelters? Y yeah, you know, uh, Ed Klum, <laughs> the story I have, and I, I knew this uh, from before I went back on active duty in 03, had started that had had a Volkswagen dealership, and he turned one of the garages into the foundation dinners kind of thing, and then he turned another garage into foundation shelters. And I used to tell people when I was a two-star general, that what I want to do when I get out of the military is work for Ed Klum. He <laughs> <laughs> was and he was he was in the Air National Guard, I believe, and he was an enlisted guy. Uh, I don't know if it did twenty years or how many years he was in there, but so I I never achieved that goal. I didn't go to work for him full time, but I, I our kids have worked in the shelters in the. Uh, Foundation dinners, and I've been over there a bit. 
we as the Knights, and part of our role, of course, is to support the ministries of the parish. So we're really supporting the ministry of the parish. We, we were only six times a year we're over there doing yeah. that. And Dave Holscher and Emmy do a lot of that, most of it really right now. And then I step in whenever, whenever it's necessary. But if you want to really try to understand how tough life can be for people, uh, working at the food pantry here at St. Mark or Foundation Dinner, we actually encounter people that are really working hard, just not getting, they get no traction in life yep. for any number of reasons. They just can't get any traction in life. And uh, you don't solve their problem by giving them a free meal. We know that. We don't solve their problem by giving them groceries here. We know that. We just try to make it a little easier for maybe them to take the next next step forward, whatever that is. Sure. Yep. Keep them going, right? Give them, yeah. give them some yeah. hope. Yeah. And at the same time, if you don't walk away from that saying, boy, am I blessed. Uh, you have no soul. Yeah, really gives you, uh, again, that additional perspective. These are people you drive by in your yeah. community every day, right? Yeah. yeah. And maybe don't give them a second look, but yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. Well, um, thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, Alan, anything else for Paul before we let him go? I just wanted to uh, let our uh, listeners know that uh, Paul is a past Grand Knight oh, of yeah. this council. Yes. Yeah. And we are very, very proud of that fact. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. And I think um, there's a really good chance we'll have Paul again on oh, the cover absolutely. a little bit more ground. Uh, so I think we just scratched the surface. But uh, Paul, thanks again. You're welcome.